The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. All right, let's give our attention to the book of James. Uh, We've walked long enough now to um, appreciate that James is not a theorist. Um, I tried to spend one of our introductory weeks to speak to the character of James, the person of James, and I, I did that very intentionally because, again, he's a, a strong character, a major consequential character in the early church, but not necessarily one that's right up front. And as we walk through this book, I want to continue to press that it's not just of historic consequence that he was um, a pastor, but it comes through with the tone and it comes through with even the, the nature of his writing. And so, again, we've walked with him long enough to appreciate that he's, he's not a theorist. He's not just saying, well, here's some ideas, maybe they'll work. Or it just He's very, very practical. He's, he's not a scholar in the sense that he's um, detached and trying out ideas or a professor. Not that those things are bad. I think he would hold his own with any such person that holds those titles. But again, he was very much a, a pastor, and it comes through with the, the whys that he communicates and the, the hows that he communicates. And we see how he skillfully continues to care for the believers to whom he is writing, even as we walk through our passage today. And so the first thing that we notice is that we've spent um, the first major section of the letter, uh, we, we observe that <clears throat> he was doing something, he was laying a foundation. And that was part of the intentionality to his writing. It, we've labored in the fact that he's not just piecing things together, but there's a clear intentionality. So he spent the first major section of the letter laying a foundation for righteously negotiating trials by way of persevering through them well by means of the wisdom provided by God. So again, perseverance because of trials, trials that are inevitably going to come of various nature, and they're going to ambush and assault our faith, but they will come And how do we negotiate them well? We persevere through them by means of the wisdom that God's provided. That was throughout this entire section that he's, um, and he made this uh, argument by way of a patterned uh, uh, positive and negative affirmation. So positive and restorative commands. We have multiple commands. This is what you should do. And then every so often, here's some restorative commands. Uh, The prohibition commands, uh, commands that give us guidelines and rails and bring us back. And when the final portion of this section came to a climatic conclusion, he spoke of the blessed condition of persevering well and the reward that will ultimately accompany a life patterned by faithful perseverance. And that was where we ended last week in terms of the blessed experience of those who persevere well and then being found approved, you receive the crown of life, eternal life in God. So then he gave his final correction that followed that. So it came to a climatic um, positive positive negative commands, positive negative commands, and then a a climatic um, expression of blessing and final reward, eternal life. And then again, the final correction, which was much more severe than we'd seen so far. It's a very firm one in which he effectively laid out a clear argument that rejects God having any culpability for one's temptations and exposes that we own this ourselves. And if lust and temptation and sin are allowed to run their course to their completed end, they will bring death. And so, again, the the temptation is to yield to temptation and to to claim that, well, I didn't persevere well because uh, the Lord introduced not trials, which that is part of our refinement and our sanctification, our growth in grace, but he introduced temptations. And James says, absolutely not. I'll tell you where temptations came from. They came from you. And when that's cultivated, it gives birth to something. And when that matures, it matures and gives birth to sin and sin matures and gives birth to death. 
And so it was a severe rebuke in terms of don't blame God for your lack of perseverance. But he didn't leave his readers on this somber note, but again came alongside them and secured their feet now on the rock of truth and in such also went on to address the beauty of the truth that he's now affirmed as he goes on to write verses 16 to 18. So it takes us to a very high point, blessed, the crown of life, don't blame God, very dark background now, but he doesn't keep us there. We stop in places and we recognize that week to week that we, we examine a text, we labor through it, and then we pray and we're done. But James continues, and so it, sometimes it's helpful to look ahead. So he doesn't leave us in that dark place, but he continues on verses 16 to 18, where he writes, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good thing and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Now, I don't expect you to to have an immediate recall of the outline that we've established when introducing the book. Um, that's not something you probably have in your study or keep in your Bibles, although I would maybe encourage that. I have it now fixed on my wall, so Eric got to see inside the, the study and saw the whiteboard on the wall, but I've upgraded even since then. Now I have, uh, I had the outline kind of flopped off to the side, but now it's prominent. I lean back and I can see it. I think it's a valuable thing to keep before you, and I don't expect you to remember that, but when we do consider it, there's some things that we can draw to our attention. So reflecting back on it now, we can see that the passage that we've come to today is, the small, or is among the smallest in the book, and it's situated somewhere. It's situated between longer portions that effectively fill out the rest of the chapter. So as you know, the portion of the book that we just finished last week, it spanned verses 2 through 15. That's a fairly large section. And then as you see, the passage that will begin next week covers verses 19 through 27. And so here we have sandwiched between that a relatively small portion. Now, as you also know, what may appear as a maybe a, a mundane examinations of structure, these things matter as we've affirmed that James did not just hodgepodge various truth nuggets together. That's a general soft critique that he, he writes in a very Proverbs-like style, and these just uh, truisms and, and truth statements are kind of woven together, but don't, don't look for continuity. No, we would actually argue quite to the contrary. There's absolute clear development of argument. There may be times that it's more of an abrupt shift or transition, but there's a continuity to, to immediate context and to the larger context. Again, we've, um, and in some of the matters, he treats more exhaustively than others, and, and that's the nature of crafting an argument. That's the nature of emphasis. And so we see that he's developing a clear, focused letter that aims toward our being made perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. That's his aim. I would say if we, if we have one walk away in terms of what's the sweep of the letter, what's that you be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. He wants perfection. He wants maturity. He wants you to be complete in Christ. And people would say, what about wisdom? Well, yes, you accomplish that by means of the wisdom that comes from above. Uh, they have a symbiotic relationship. You can't separate the two. You have to have the wisdom from above to accomplish the goals of the letter. So effectively, he's aiming that we, have a, we cultivate a life of faithfulness that allows perseverance to work its perfect work. All things that we saw in that first section, which I argued was a foundational section. And again, it's an aim made possible as we walk in the wisdom from above and these core matters, again, were, were clearly emphasized in that opening section. And another critical element of James's letter will be more fully developed in the section that we'll begin working through next week. And so chapter 1 really serves, as is not uncommon, a foundation for the letter. So 2 through 15 
a very clear foundation developed, a lot of themes introduced things, gave us the trajectory of the letter, and then 19 through 27, also a major theme de- uh, developed as he gives a, a clear measure of attention to our submission to and engagement of the scriptures. But here we are between those two sections, which I'd argue is a bridge section that speaks to truth in its own right as well. So again, two major sections of the book that provide a robust foundation for the letter as a whole, sections that plainly draw out and establish most of its major themes. So again, we took a number of weeks to walk through major themes. Three weeks, most of them are going to be right here in that box that you see, 2 through 27. You're going to see, experience, walk through, be exposed to almost all the major themes. And between these two sections comes our passage, itself a a very small section, as we've mentioned, consisting of three verses, and I would argue that bridge these two larger sections while also accomplishing a unique and complementary work itself. It's not just a bridge with major subject, now we need a transition, major subject. They have their own message, as it were, complementing the one that came before, complementing the one that comes after, bridging the two, but also speaking in its own right as well. Now, once again, we're going to have an opening command. So we've seen this. Every time we have a major transition, we can expect to see an opening command with that section. So we're going to have an opening command. This time, it's an exhortive warning, a call to stay on the right path of thinking, as it were. He states, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. This is followed by a robust theological affirmation, one that in many ways concisely affirms much of what's been developed in verses 2 through 15, where he, he says every good thing, everything good, everything good, <laughs> every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. And as we see, this is a, it is a full sentence, but it's packed with precious truths. And it's also among the generous theological handles that we have been afforded for this book, something that we can get our hands around. Sometimes we can walk away from a message or even read a book and say, I really enjoyed that, or there's a lot of things that, were, that convicted me or a lot of things to think about, but if someone says, well, what was it about? It's a lot of stuff. It was, it's, it's hard to get your hands around, to give just one handle. But this is one of those passages that kind of gives us a handle, something we can get our hand around to hold into something so big that it otherwise overwhelms our ability to hold it together at one time. So some of the others that might have been provided so far in this book might include joy and trials. You got, you got the early portion of the letter with that, right? So joy and trials. You You might not be able to articulate all the dynamics of it, but you can hear those three words and know, yes, that's a lot of what James talked about. That's what I need to evaluate in terms of my experience. That's what I need to pursue in terms of my life. So joy and trials. We also had perfections of perseverance. Um, Again, something that we saw the whole of that first section was speaking about perseverance. And so perfections of perseverance. Oh, yeah, that makes me think back to let perseverance have its perfect work so that I will be Um, complete, perfect, lacking in nothing. We also saw maybe we could put another handle on that last section that we covered in terms of not blaming God for a temptation. We could just say sin kills. Well, that wraps up those two verses, 17 and 18, where we saw that digression of if I if I allow my lust to take root and, and conceive, as it were, temptation, and then let it that uh, mature and, and, and work its work and brings forth sin, and then ultimately sin death. And so we have sin kills. Sin will always kill. So that's a good handle to have for that portion. And I've provided that, not so I'll have some you know, sermon points, uh, but rather these concise statements have been... Uh, ways to grab hold of larger things. And I think this is a way we can think about this section now is to call it the unchangeable good giver. So I think if you get that, the unchangeable good giver, it might be a little bit of a strange phrase, 
but it's one that will capture what we're talking about. Or maybe someone preferred to call it the immutable good giver. But immutable, uh, meaning never changing, it's a character of God that's part of how we would identify God. He doesn't change, part of what James will talk about, no shifting shadow, no changes. And that's part of what distinguishes him from his creation. Everything else is subject to change and impact. He's, he's, he's not changing in any way. And it's a good term and certainly applies here. But in its formality, it might, it might miss the simple and gracious tone that James appears to be using here to bolster the challenging but encouraging truths that he's already labored through and also really might miss the tone of what he's establishing. And that's not to say that theology is... is uh, a dampering or that it kind of is, is kind of stodgy, but rather I think James wants to gently remind us he doesn't change. Yes, immutable, that's true. But just hear that he doesn't change. You're going to walk through trials and you're going to need to persevere and you're going to struggle. And you're going to have to look to him who gives wisdom from above and you're going to look to him who's gracious in his giving and he doesn't change. Just wants that gentle tone to be established. He wants you to see that characteristic and remember that. So we have, again, an opening command, a robust theological affirmation, and also a chief expression of this theological affirmation in verse 18, where he states, In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. And this is a well-known theological affirmation that by design is to be encouraging, even invigorating for the long journey that perseverance will lead us on. And while it's been expressed a number of ways throughout the New Testament, it's perhaps most closely expressed by Peter when he opens his first letter with 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-5. through 5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, and unfading, having been kept, for you and kept in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So it'll be of no surprise when we get to this portion of our text, verse 18, that we'll again see Peter affirming that James, what James goes on to express here for us, namely the relation of how the Father has caused us to be born again through the Scriptures. Through the Scriptures, we've been born again, something both James and Peter will affirm for us. But let's begin now by giving our attention first to the opening command to not be deceived or not to be misled. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Now, again, it's the common pattern that while James peppers imperatives throughout his letter, he also usually uses one at the beginning of a new section. And we saw that with verse 2. We saw that with verse 19. Or we'll see that with verse 19. Uh, so consider it all joy, verse 2. And we're going to again see it next week when we begin another new section. Know this, my beloved brothers. So it's not surprising that while this section's relatively brief, only three verses, he opens it with a command. But it's the nature of the command that's striking to us. The fact that he uses a command that's grammatically consistent with how he structures the book. The nature of it is unique. He's telling his readers not to be deceived or, as is frequently expressed, to not be led astray, such as we see in chapter 5 where he again employs that term, my brothers, if any among you strays from the truth. Same terminology in terms of uh, being deceived or, or led astray. Now, with a command such as this, we want to look for what, it's, uh, what it may be associated with. Uh, do not be deceived of what? Uh, who's the deceiver? What's the nature of deception? As it would be rather philosophically ambiguous to be made to stand alone. If he just said, beloved, don't be deceived. Okay, that's, that's a good exhortation. 
but does it have something it's rooted to? And we know the nature of James is that he's very practical, very action-oriented, and so it's not his style just to give some philosophical statement, just don't be deceived in any general regard. No, he, he connects it to things because, again, he's intensely practical. He expects tangible actions to accompany our walk. And this is why it might seem peculiar to detach our passage from what precedes and what follows, identifying it rather as a section to itself. So some people would, if you look at different commentaries or maybe even sometimes the structure of the headings in your Bible, sometimes they're helpful, sometimes they're less helpful, and maybe they moved over 16 with 15 to, to connect the um, God does not tempt. Don't be deceived about this. And that, that's a good argument, but I think it's actually speaking to the section within itself, also with a view back and a view ahead. In that sense, it makes a bridge, doesn't it? So we see that it's a unit unto itself, but it bridges both passages, specifically in view of this command and in the development of this command. And this is how I want us to understand this command. Uh, one, that it speaks to its own immediate passages and bridges its surrounding context, developing uh, its developed message. In other words, first view the command as speaking to James's statement about God's character. He's not just saying, don't be deceived in terms of what I just spoke about, but don't be deceived about what I'm going to say. And that's going to be the nature of God's character and its natural course of action. Namely, that again, he's unchanging, that he gives good things, and the measure of his good givings expressed in our salvation. So he's good, he's unchangeably good, and he gives accordingly. Don't be deceived, don't mis be misled about these things, primarily. I think that's what he's primarily focusing on. And we might lose sight of that if we're too eager to attach this command to the immediately preceding context first and say, well, no, it has to do with what he talked about with temptations. It does. I think there's a connection to that. But don't miss the primary connection because we don't arbitrarily separate it, but we see it as distinct while also looking back and looking ahead. So what immediately came before in view of that was James's restorative command and its more complete outworking. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. So he is Speaking to the immediate, but looking back, he does have this in view as well. And this command would most naturally fit in with what was stated here, as it would fit in with other commands too. But arguably, again, the command in verse 13 was unique as it reprimanded deficient and erroneous thoughts of God. That's what he was accomplishing in 13. It was a correction. This is not a correction. This is an exhortation here. So I think it's fair and reasonable to have a view back to this engagement, even doubling down on the call not to think such thoughts of God, but again, remember, that's not the primary emphasis here. The primary emphasis is that this is a command pressing clarification and what he goes on to state in the next few verses, verses 17 and 18, which are a complementary counterpart to the conclusion of the last passage and an opening to the development that will come in the next section, verses 19 through 27. All matters that I hope will be made clear, if not now, by the end, and then if not by the end, maybe going into next week. We're in the long haul. We're watching James developing these things. But again, first, a, f uh, a few other matters to consider with the nature uh, of this command or its tone and its delivery. So I've said it's a different kind of command. It's a very pastorally driven command. So it's, that's going to come through in the, the, the tone of it and the delivery of it. So the nature of the command is telling. There's the prospect, if not the danger, of being deceived or led astray. That should, that should bring some sobering thought to us. He doesn't just arbitrarily throw something out there to see how we'll respond. He's rather giving us a, a warning. There's the danger that you'll drift. There's a danger, but you'll be deceived, that you'll, that you'll go down a path that's not profitable. And while we have a very proactive and terrible enemy known as the deceiver, so maybe we naturally attach that, don't be deceived, and we know there's the deceiver, 
I would argue that this is a natural vulnerability we possess within ourselves, that we are prone to wonder in our thoughts about the Lord. And that's the struggle that James is going to speak to, because it's not a matter of is something being introduced in a deception, but rather are we going to drift as it relates to right thinking about God when walking through trials. And I know that from my own experiences and observations, you know, it would appear that we we often view ourselves, or I'll put myself in this category, so again, I often view myself, I think others often view themselves as the exception when it comes to being impervious to certain dangers and or in our suffering various hardships. So again, a lot of people think, I'm going to be casual as I go about this conduct because I know other people are prone to accidents, injuries, and things happening, but I mean, really, the likelihood of it happening to me is not very great, said the person that it happened to. So these classical fallacies, basically, that it won't happen to me, or if we apply it to the context of trial and struggle, this should not be happening to me. So it has happened, and now, wait, I am the exception. This shouldn't be happening to me. The Lord understands my, my personal needs for growth and grace uh, preclude me from being uh, part of these struggles. I, I shouldn't experience these various trials because, you know, I'm me. But that's not how the Lord works. Both of these are elevated views of ourselves. It won't happen or it shouldn't happen to me. So elevated views of ourselves that when challenged often reveal not just a measure maybe of pride or deficient thinking about our own condition and experiences, but some theological fallacies reframed, if not actually stated by, God will not allow this to happen to me. Well, that's an interesting view of God, that he, he so customized your growth and grace and sanctification and making you conform to Christ and, and bringing you about to the final work that he's going to exempt you from that because somehow you're different. Or God should not allow this to happen to me. So now, you know, we're going to put God in a position where we're going to determine the nature of trials and struggles and growth and grace. And so, again, theological ramifications with it won't happen to me, it shouldn't happen to me. And so again, I would submit that in the context of trials specifically and the challenges of sanctification more broadly, we're very much in danger of being deceived, namely by ourselves, being led astray or, or embracing, accepting deficient and erroneous views, not only of ourselves, but of the Lord himself. So unlike the other commands that we've walked through to present, which when framed with a negative element, they were restorative rebukes. So the for that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything or let no one say when he is tempted. So we have that negative component to a command. Those are usually restorative rebukes. Well, this one has a negative component, but it appears to be more of a proactive safeguard. So don't be deceived. He's not correcting like, oh, you've, you've gone down this road. You've, you've gone down this path. Rather, he's saying, don't be deceived. This is a natural vulnerability in the context of trials and the growth of grace and the experiences that we'll have. Don't be deceived. Don't stray not just in your thoughts about yourself, but your thoughts about God here. And he's going to build up a right view of God that's going to insulate us from these things and help us to submit to this command. And again, an element of this conclusion also comes with its tone of delivery. Um, it's not just uh, the fact that, well, it's different here, even though he uses a negative element and a command. It's different also because of the tone of the delivery. James addresses it not only to those who are clearly fellow believers, so brothers, but beloved believers, beloved brothers, a description he only uses three times in this letter. And as we walk through first and second Peter, you know that I would take a pause when Peter would talk about the beloved. 
because I think it was worthy of special attention, that, that endearing term, that very pastoral affectionate term, and, and when and how he used it was usually very clear in terms of, I'm going to give you something hard to hear or something I really is weighing heavy on me. I want you, beloved, hear this. And in my study of James, I've, I've wrestled to appreciate his use of beloved, um, which he only uses three times throughout the book, but on account of the limited use and their close proximity to one another, I've not been able to come to a settled conclusion on how does James use beloved? Well, he uses it because he's very pastoral. I understand that. He uses it because he's very gracious. But is there, are there strategic moments that he uses it? Because it's different. He talks about brothers and brethren and believers all the time. But beloved, that should catch your attention. It'd be like if I called you by name, but not only called you by name, but affectionately so. And so there's a different use of the term here, or a different application of speaking to the, uh, to the believers, namely beloved believers. And some have argued, and they've seen a greater pastoral urgency here, which I'm, I'm inclined to. I'm sympathetic to that. But it's, um, I wonder why is it not in other places that I would expect it to be. So I don't know that it's wholly clear just yet, but we're going to continue walking with James. Maybe it'll become more clear. But even if it doesn't, we can set that aside. And whatever the case might be, it's not a wasted term. It's not that he's just filling out his, his word count for his letter. And well, here's a good place to put that term beloved. That'll, that'll sound nice here. He's not wasting that term of endearment. It's clear that this is a matter of no small consequence to James. He wants us to understand, I've given, what, eight commands up to this point. Some of them have been direct commands. Some of them have been restorative commands. But now I'm giving him a command, and he's framing it with, Beloved, don't be deceived. Don't stray here. Don't have deficient views of God. Don't, th- don't fail to think rightly about God's good care of his people. And if you think about it, what better and more pastoral of a place to put such an endearing emphasis on, um, of engagement, to, to, to engage them differently than to engage them where I'm warning you, I don't want you to stray here. And specifically, I don't want you to stray in your thoughts of our, our, our magnificent creator God who cares for his people more perfectly than we could even imagine. This right on the heels of persevere, trials, hardships, struggles. So I hope we hear that tone that James is establishing with this command, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. And with this, we come to the substance of that command, what I've called a robust theological affirmation. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Now, there's a surprisingly uh, full conversation about how to understand the grammar of these two elements that James speaks to here every good thing given, every perfect gift. Much of the discussions about whether these are, these are two distinct expressions or one expressed in parallel and of distinct, how are they to be understood or distinguished? And it's a, a significant point of, uh, of spirited struggle in terms of how do we best understand James. And the conclusion which I found to be the most persuasive and helpful is that the first is an expression of the act of giving, and the second speaks to the gift itself, together expressing that the totality of the act and the gift are sourced in God. D. Edmund Hebert helps us as he expresses it this way, good describes the giving as useful and beneficial in its effect, and perfect marks the gift as complete and lacking in nothing to meet the needs of the recipient. And also we see that the Net Bible also comes to this conclusion. And with this, 
uh, exercises its practice of, of its smoothing out. Some translations leave more work to the teacher and to the, uh, to the one studying the scriptures. Some of them kind of smooth it out for you and come to some conclusions, and they've smoothed this out, their language there, to reflect their position more overtly. And when they say, all generous giving and every perfect gift is from above. I think that's a good way to express it. So God is good in his giving, and God is good in what he gives. So again, if we want one thing to understand, don't be deceived. Don't miss this. Beloved, don't think incorrectly about the Lord of glory, that he's good in his giving, and he's good in what he gives. James wants us to understand that. James is intensely practical, so you need to realize just how practical that is. You're going to walk through various trials. You're going to experience various things. You're going to be challenged to think less about the glorious God. And James says, no, he's good in his giving and good in what he gives to include trials. So again, that includes our various trials that provide a context for perseverance to work its perfect work so that we might be perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing. And a view of this, we've already worked through a range of God's good giving of perfect gifts. And so we could, have, we could go back through what we've already studied in James, and we could say, what, what's an expression of God's good giving and perfect gifts? Well, we would include wisdom, right? Wisdom that comes from above. Wisdom for those who ask for it in faith without doubting, which means that we're provided the necessary and skillful understanding to negotiate the range of trials in ways that reflect a righteous obedience that pleases God as, as it advances us to a faithful finish. That's an amazing gift. So we exchange gifts all the time. Uh, sometimes we, we've gotten to a point in life with some of us where it's like, well, I don't, I don't need anything. And then there's the, the, the social, cultural expectation. I still have to give you something. I'm going to give you something you don't need and that you've affirmed you don't need, but you'll be grateful for because I gave it to you. And you'll use it or you'll give it to someone else. But we're always in need of wisdom. Remember that? Remember if any of you lacks wisdom and you do ask and he gives graciously, single-mindedly. So what a kind gift the good gift giver perfectly giving what we need, wisdom to negotiate trials, various trials so that we could persevere so as to be perfect complete, lacking in nothing. We also see the benefits and joys of God's blessing, a gift of being fully happy and righteously satisfied in God as we persevere by the means that he has generously provided us. And so we saw that last week, he not only generously gives, but if we walk in a faithful way and we persevere well, that we will experience God's blessing, joyful, happy, fully satisfied. And that doesn't mean we're walking around just with his peculiar grins on our face where people might be suspect of what we're up to, but rather there's a, there's a, a, a genuine heart that's delighting in God and satisfied in God, whether we appear to lack or otherwise. That's a good gift by a good giver. He's generously provided for us. Also, we have the receiving of the crown of life, eternal life promised to those who love the Lord, a full, final, and enduring gift. So that's one that we anticipate, but we don't anticipate with, I hope I get that, like some child at Christmas waiting like, oh, I, I don't know, it's all wrapped, it's in the box. I kind of gave hints, I gave clues, I hope I get this. Now, this is a, if you're found approved, and that means if you've persevered in a way that pleases the Lord and demonstrate a pattern of faithfulness, not that you are without failure, drifting, or otherwise, but you've been restored and you continue to have a clear pattern of righteous perseverance, depending on the Lord, exercising wisdom, you can be found approved. And when you're found approved, you will receive the crown of life, which is an expression of eternal life. Talk about a good gift by a good gift giver. And that transforms how we persevere through trials. And we could fill in really an inexhaustible list if we took the time to consider our lives, focusing less on our hardships and struggles and more on the extraordinary range of God's good gifts to us. Uh, I think we'd be 
hard-pressed to, to exhaust that. Now, we might exhaust it because we're short-sighted sometimes and we fail to appreciate things or we just take it for granted. We're so used to how many good gifts we have. It'd be like someone expressing, I'm so grateful I had a meal today. And then some of us would be like, that's like every day. That's every day that God provided. And so it's a, it's a matter of uh, perspective in terms of we need to appreciate God's gift to us. But even if we did focus on our hardships, though, so if, we, if we're struggling and we recognize our hardships and our struggles, there too we would find that God is good and is giving good gifts to his beloved. And if we wanted to take a peek back and then a peek ahead, we could also note the following. So look, looking back to the section we just covered, we would also affirm that God gives good gifts that produce blessing and life not lust-infused temptation that produced death. So that was the correction. So the affirmation and correction. And then if we want to look ahead to see how this bridge fits into this passage, God gives his soul-saving word that by design directs the ordering and conduct of our sojourning in this natural life. So he's going to give us his word, and his word's going to give us a clear means to negotiate the challenges and struggles and expectations of this life. Those are all good gifts. Now, we've saturated this, these conclusions that who gives God or who gives good gifts? Well, God does. I've said that repeatedly, and I've affirmed that. We've recognized that God is the source of the good gift, uh, good giving, and good gifts. But it might be proper to ask if that was James's intent, because he's not afraid to use the word God. God gives wisdom. Don't blame God for your temptation, but he doesn't use the term God specifically in this text, like he did again in verses five and thirteen, where he addressed what God does and does not provide in those respective contexts. Well. It's plain enough that God is exactly who James is attributing these things to here, and he does this by filling out a rich image of God in the process. Uh, first, he qualifies that these good gifts are expressed as continuing to come, so it's not just that he's given good gifts, but he continues to good good gifts. This is the pattern, the nature of his engagement with his beloved, and they specifically that they come from above, which is itself a way of expressing that which comes from or is sourced in God. So again, what's the nature of it? Where did it come from? Well, if it came from above, it came from God. And we see this. Uh, the Apostle John employed this language of coming from above, expressing the new birth that's required to see the kingdom of God as he records Jesus stating that one must be born again or born from above. In John 3.3 3 and 3.7, later in that same chapter, Jesus esteemed, um, his, his Jesus' esteemed identity is spoken to as having come from above. And then John 19, verse 11, when Pilate was questioning Jesus and goes on to speak of his authority in the matter, Jesus corrects Pilate's understanding of authority and expresses that he would have none if it had not been given to him from above, if it had not been given to him from God and not Rome. And then later in the book of James, we have a very clear connection with another good gift coming from above. In verses 30, uh, chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, within the letter itself, again, we have a really kind of a central point of emphasis in chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, where he has the comparisons of wisdom, a very critical part of the book that we'll get to in time. And here we have one is earthly, natural, even demonic, namely the wisdom from below. The other is pure, peaceable, submissive, full of mercy, good fruits, without doubting or hypocrisy, namely the wisdom from above the wisdom that is sourced in God and generously provided by him when asked for in faith. So in expressing the nature of the source alone, we could just say, where did it come from? And I can tell you who the giver is. It's come from above. And if it comes from above, it's come from our Lord, our gracious, good-giving, grace-giving God. 
that these good gifts, they come from above. James makes it clear that he's expressing that they come from God, a matter of theological consequence, but also of the most practical encouragement too. But just as James establishes a clear tone with his use of beloved in this passage, so also he establishes a clear tone with his giving a fuller picture of God and his giving, referring to him as the father of lights. Again, that's part of his, his tone. It's not just to be poetic. It's not just to be expressive. He's doing something here. Every good gift has come from above. That tells us how it gives us our theological calibration. And then he wants us to think about how do you think about this good gift giver? Well, he's the father of lights. What's that mean? Well, it's a title. Father of Lights is um, it's different than maybe we're accustomed to because it's only here in the scriptures. And so maybe we should think of how does that, uh, that uh, title, Father of something, what, what does that express? Well, it expresses that it's the, uh, the source of something. Something came from it. It's, its origin, its roots, or its primary reflection are in what fathered it. And so we see multiple examples of this. Um, some positive, some negative. The first one being a negative, the devil is identified as the father of lies. Lying is at the core of his essence and marks the totality of his character, so much so that the natural liar among men is expressing a, a like character as his own. We see that in John 8, 44. So again, the devil is the father of lies. He's not the, the source of it, but his character is so bound up, so identified with it that, that he, he could be referred to as the father of lies. Abraham, by contrast, in Romans four sixteen, is described as the father of us all. Now, obviously, maybe some of you felt the same tension I did at some point in life when you realized that as a young person at camp, you sang Father Abraham, and then you start having convictions about, was he indeed my father? I'm not a Jew. How do I understand the covenant promises? Are they applied to me? Well, um, Paul makes this clear for us that he is indeed father of us all, the circumcised and uncircumcised, as he exemplified justifying faith and in such as an enduring model of trusting God's promises. So, he is a, a father-like figure. He, he exemplifies faith in that regard. 2 Corinthians 1.3, God is referred to as the father of mercies, as he's the source of mercy. It's not just that he's so identified with mercy. It's beyond that. So the others are, are, are saturated in their association and context, and we can think of, oh, faith. Yeah, we think of Abraham. Lies, we think of Satan. No, it's, it's even beyond that with this context as it's applied to God. He's the the father of mercies. He's the source of mercy and its application in the comforting of afflicted believers. Again, 2 Corinthians 1.3, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of mercies and God of all comfort. In Ephesians 1, we also see a like expression of God's character. God is referred to as the father of glory. Again, it's not that he's, well, he's really associated with glory so intimately and so saturating such a saturating identification. No, he is indeed the, the source and, and glory finds its identification and its association with our Lord. So that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of glory may give to you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the full knowledge of him. And now he's identified as the father of lights. And unlike mercy or glory, these are natural celestial lights. And so we have mercy we don't necessarily have a physical characteristic we're tying to it or glory in the same way but these are natural celestial lights uh, james is not necessarily directing our attention in the same way that john might have in his own use of the language of light john loves using contrast of light and dark and there's good theological reason for that but whereas john might be communicating more of an expression of spiritual purity james by contrast is simply speaking of waves that fill and illumine our natural world light the things that when we step outside, the reason that we can see what we see, 
the things that we can enjoy, even in the evening hours with the moon as it glows. And maybe James is referring to celestial lights. Maybe that doesn't surprise you because he clearly loves to use uh, pictures from nature. So we see this throughout the book, the, the wind-tossed surf, as that describes the man who's double-minded. He's like the, the, the winds out in the middle of the, the waters. They, they don't control themselves. They have no dignity of, 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 of source in terms of stability. The sun-scorched flowers of the grass, so those who are dependent on their riches, they're, they're going to quickly fade. The forest that's set aflame by the, by the tongue, fresh and bitter water, also an image of the tongue, fig trees, olive trees, and vines, and, and what kind of harvest they produced and what kind of uh, uh, fruit they produce, again, associated with the tongue, and then the harvest that follows the seasonal rains in terms of our persevering and the expectation. He loves to use this natural language. These, these very much like his brother, his half-brother, our Lord, he'll draw from nature and say, look, it, it's like this. It's a picture we can get and get our hands around. He's intensely practical in that way. But this is more than just a natural illustration. Rather, it reminds us of the intersection of the natural and supernatural. And we see that as we see the connection association between James and Genesis. Because it presses us to a view to the glory of the God who spoke and created light. It's not just that he's drawing from another wonderful, nice picture because we all understand light. We go and we experience that every day. We see and behold light. We know the greater and lesser lights. But rather, he's, he's pressing us to that intersection of the supernatural and the natural together and who created and spoke and made all such things. And in that moment, he established time and declared his works good. So when the Lord declared, let there be light, he, he established the context of time and declared it good. And so his pattern continued with each subsequent day. For six days, we affirm the creation accounts. The first day creating light. The fourth day creating the lights in the expanse. I think that's what James is speaking to here. The lights in the expanse. Namely, the sun, the moon, and the stars, which were by design dynamic in their relationship with other elements of the natural creation. And by dynamic, we mean that they were to separate the day from the night. That means there's going to be a change, right? The change of relationship, change of engagement. We don't have the sun up all night. There's something that happens in its relationship to the creation, at least our, our position in it. Uh, they were to be for signs, for seasons, days, and years. And ultimately, they were to give light to the earth and its inhabitants. Therefore, they would appear to be some of the most dynamic and naturally changing ele major elements of the creation. A reality that we are experiencing even now is... I regret to tell you our days are growing shorter, they're getting cooler, our, the earth has done its rotation, and it's very unfortunate because things are going to change. We're not going to be as warm, we're going to get colder, the days are shorter. But that's part of the design of creation, that dynamic. It wasn't like that a week ago, it actually won't be like that this week. There's a dynamic and change to it. And just as has been true throughout history, so we too wonder at these magnificent elements of the creation. Uh, people have always wondered at the, the, the magnificences and the glories of the celestial, uh, uh, the sun, the moons, the stars. And even now where the world's making plans and, and a bit of a race once more to, to we want to touch the moon. We want to get there. Now, I know there's bigger plans for beyond that, but there are also celestial plans and, and to, to enjoy and to explore God's creation, whether it's understood and appreciated that way or not. But again, man's making plans just to touch the moon. We're going to long plans, long strategy. And then we have the fact that we have no choice but to respect the sun, so much so that we dare not look at it directly. So I remember, what was a couple of years ago, we had that eclipse, and we're all kind of like, can we take a peek? Are we going to burn our eyes? What's going to happen? Or we, do we have the special glasses? Are we right, right time, right place? 
for some of us, it was more or more exciting than others because not seeing it, I, I, did I look too long? We have to respect the sun so much so that we dare not look at it directly for any period of time or we're going to be blind forever. But James draws our attention not to the sun, not to the moon, not to the stars, but to the one who spoke, who created and sustains them, whose brilliance will not be looked upon by natural man, not because the intensity of gases exploding make for too bright of a light, but because his glory is too great for us to behold with the natural eye. The one who has not simply been described as good as his creation was, but is himself good and the measure of all other things. This is the father of lights, whose brilliance and perfections are unchanging. They do not know seasons. They don't know variations or a range of conditions, and they suffer no obstruction by objects, either great or small. And think about that. Think about how really extraordinary the sun is in terms of its impact, in terms of its usefulness. Very little change, and we're, we're doomed. Uh, we, and there are a range of experience. We have to be very mindful. Some of us, it bakes. We just naturally cook in it. Um, some of us can tolerate it to varying degrees. We see why does the grass grow so well? Well, because sun and, and, and water, but these things, they're extraordinary. Sun's a very powerful thing. It gives us pause to say, wow, what a magnificent creator. But then it's most peculiar that this extraordinary object, this, uh, this greater light can be obstructed. It can be changed. The accumulation of water droplets and ice particles can come together and make the sun look as though it's submitted a portion of its glory to a formidable opponent. Only again, it'll, it'll burst through, and then it loses again, and it's substantially concealed. And you can, again, we can watch the windows. There's going to be times it looks like, did the sun start to set? No, it's back. Did it start? It's back. And it's this dynamic changing by something so simple as water droplets trapped up in the sky. The sun's, content, uh, the sun's rays contending with thick clouds, a, a celestial dance putting the variations and shadows of this greater light on prominent display. Because as glorious as it is, it changes. It's dynamic. It's dynamic in terms of its experience, its engagement, our experience with it. But by contrast, while James would certainly acknowledge that there are thick, looming clouds of providence that impact how we view and experience our Lord that may feel our day, that fill our days and make our nights seem so inordinately long, the Father of lights has not changed, and his glory is brilliant as ever, especially as his beloved walk through various trials. So I think he wants us to say, look at your creator God. He's the one that declared things good because he is good himself, and he gives all good things. And while this creation changes, and while it's dynamic, and while it has certain elements that man is struggling to manipulate and submit ourselves to, this good giver doesn't change. And so when he gives us those eight commands, and now a ninth command, it's because his, his authority and his faithfulness, it endures. And he's giving us that which is good, because he is, again, he's a good giver. And James will not have us miss this. And so with a unique measure of authority, he commands us, again, don't be deceived. Don't stray from this clear truth, beloved brothers and sisters. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. That's what he's aiming for us to not miss. It's not that God doesn't tempt us. That's true. Don't miss that either. But don't miss the nature and character of God as it impacts our thinking about him and as it will inform not only our worship, but our negotiating various trials. 
And again, James doesn't stop here. He then goes on to provide us a chief expression of this theological affirmation. And in such also gives the clearest elements of his bridging what he's already spoken to in our last section and what's coming in the next as he now finishes with verse 18. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Again, one phrase tucked into this verse provides, I would say, the clearest bridge between our former passage and our next passage. He brought us forth by the word of truth. This is a bridging, uh, this is a, a bridge that's expressed with a bringing forth, a radically different uh, bringing forth. Uh, by different means, radically different bringing forth, radically different means, it's life by means of the word. So we saw a different one before. It was bringing forth lust, temptation, sin, death. This is a bringing forth of life by the word of God, the word of God that he's going to have more fully developed in the next section. So we see how he's bridging these two themes while also brilliantly expressing this exhortation to think rightly about God and his plans and purposes, characters and ways. But before we can appreciate how James is making these connections, we first need to appreciate how he again brings this brief portion of his letter to its own climatic expression. So 16, 17, 18 has a little micro climax, as it were, specifically the greatest gift that the Father of Lights has bestowed on us, his beloved, namely our redemption in Christ. So he, he says, don't miss this. Don't, don't underestimate. Don't, don't fail to appreciate the, the magnificence of the character of God put on display in his being good and giving good things. And what's the uh, chief expression of that in terms of our engagement with him? What's our redemption? And he's going to draw out the nature of our redemption, all of which is in accordance to the Father's will as we submit by faith to the gospel. And in such, ourselves are being born from above. But with this in view, how might we understand the language of the immutable or unchanging sovereign creator exercising his expressed intent or desired course of action? So, and the exercise of his will. And again, so once more, how do we understand this language of the immutable or unchanging sovereign creator, the father of lights, exercising his expressed will or his intent or desired course of action, specifically as it applies to the regeneration of his people? Well, we might find ourselves echoing Foy Valentine who stated it rather clearly, I would say, when he states, quote, the supreme gift of salvation's new birth through God's good news in Christ is no chance development, but is the result of the Heavenly Father's divine intention. Again, it's not complicated. The sovereign, unchanging God of glory has accomplished his purposes. His purposes do include a redemption of his people. Now, by way of pursuing an understanding of the plain words here, Again, this is not a, I don't think it's a topic of great mystery. It might be a topic of great struggle, and I appreciate that. That's fine. We can struggle with doctrine, but we submit to it. The unchanging sovereign creator has been said to have exercised or carried out his expressed intent or desired course of action. God did what he set out to do. God always accomplishes what he sets out to do. Therefore, anything within the scope of his will must come to pass. By the nature of his character, I have a will, I have a desire, I have an ambition, I have things I'd like to see that may or may not happen. But here we have the father of lights, he who declares things good, himself is good, the giver of all good things. When he expresses his will, it does come to pass. And while we may see the will of God expressed in a variety of ways to communicate matters such as his desire for none to perish, this is not the nature of how the language is employed here. Rather, this is expressing definite action, the production of new birth by his word. This is God's desire, and it's exercised or carried out accordingly. So again, James states, God has brought us forth. And in this, he's again employing the language of birth, 
the exact language he used in the vivid description of temptation's terrible path, which comes to its culmination when sin matures and itself brings forth death. And with this, we have the most magnificent tie-in with, again, our prior passage. Now we look back again, which climax with the promise of the crown of life before finally finishing with a firm rebuke by the way of the command that we see here. Let no one say that he is tempted. I'm being tempted by God, which is followed by the graphic image of the nature of temptation and which finishes with, and when sin is fully matured, it brings forth death. And it's with this dark backdrop, having just settled in, James came to this next section with its own command, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Do not miss the glory of God's good giving, and most definitely don't miss his great gift of redemption itself, bringing forth life, eternal life, by the word of truth, otherwise known as the gospel. And a matter that is implicitly understood here in James, namely that uh, the good news, the, the word of truth is the gospel. It's implicitly understood by James. It's explicitly stated by Paul. So we see this in a number of passages or a few passages here. Ephesians chapter 1. In him, you, in him you also, after listening to the word of truth, same language, the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Again, Paul picks up that same language as James in Colossians 1, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, and then having established the relationship between the word of truth being an expressing or an expression of the gospel, we can go on to affirm the powerful working of the gospel, as Paul also stated in Romans chapter 1, where he states, in view of the word of truth being the gospel, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God to salvation. So again, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous will live by faith. So in James is drawing out the glory of the unchanging sovereign creator's gracious gift of salvation, he's also affirming for us that God's means of causing us to be born again is by the word of truth, the gospel. So once more, James is drawing out the glory of the unchanging, sovereign creator's gracious gift of salvation. Don't miss this. That's the command. He's a good, gracious giver. What's the culmination of that experience of his gracious giving? It's the exercising of his will to cause us to be born again by what means? By means of our submission and faith to the gospel, namely the word of truth. And it's not personal testimonies, though. I know a lot of times when we think about evangelism, let me tell you my story. Well, that's, that's valuable. That's, that's really precious. And I know people, uh, when we were praying for, for Andre, one of the things I'd be mindful of, I know his mom's seen a change. The story changed. There's a pivot point. But personal testimonies are, are valuable, but they're not the power of God on display as they are in their gospel. Persuasive arguments or refuting bad teaching or, or, the, or bad theologies, that's valuable, but just like you can persuade someone one way, they can be persuaded another way. That's not the matter. That, that's not our point of focus. Rather, it's a clear articulation of God's truth. Therefore, everything short of God's truth lacks sufficient credibility in and of itself. So even while supplemental teachings, applications, testimonies, resources might complement the true authority of the scriptures, they can in no way stand in for them. So they complement, but they don't stand in because, again, God's exercising his will to cause us to be born again, not by any other thing less than the scriptures, the word of truth, the gospel. It's God's word alone that's spirit-inspired, living, active, soul-piercing, and revealing of the righteousness and power of God, the one true God. It's the scriptures by which one is brought forth by God. And this testimony is not unique to James. As many of you recall Peter's own testimony to us that believers— 
or quote, have been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible. That is through the living and enduring word of God. And Paul is essentially communicating the same thing in Romans chapter 10, where he talks about the nature of how one believes. But what does it say? The word, of, uh, the word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, the gospel, which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, leading to righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, leading to salvation. For the scripture says, drawing on the authority of the text of the scriptures, whoever believes upon him will not be put to shame. And with this, James brings this section to a conclusion, providing a purpose statement for the gift of our redemption by the unchanging sovereign creator. So that, this is why he's done this, this is why he's caused to be born again, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. So he's given a command, he's given a theological um, a point of exhortation, encouragement, and now he's given the, the working out of it and a chief expression of our salvation. Now he's going to say, this is why, this is why he's caused you to be born again, that you'd be a first fruits among his creatures. Now, the language of first fruits is familiar territory from both the Old and New Testament vantage point. So if you're struggling, I know it's sub- September already, late in September, mid-September, and if you're struggling with your reading through the scriptures and you're starting with Genesis, you didn't have to get very far before you're running into first fruits. And so you're familiar with that language, and it's one that returns also into the New Testament context, but the Old Testament context primarily being one of returning our first and our best back to God. So we saw the first fruits as expressed in the Old Testament scriptures, a worshipful expression of confidence that God will continue to provide and thanksgiving for his kind gifts to us. And then this largely carried over to its New Testament applications too, a worshipful expression of confidence of God's future provision and special thanksgiving to what he's already done. So again, it's gratitude for what he's provided, confidence in what he will continue to provide. And with this, we see the development in a a range of passages. In Romans 8, it's the first fruits of the Spirit of God, um, the works of the Spirit, um, they're present now that demonstrate a more full and perfect work to come. So again, there's evidence of a work that will be finished and complete that's demonstrated now with the fruits of the Spirit or the work of the Spirit in our lives. In Romans 16, Paul speaks of Epinatius, the first fruit of salvation in Asia, the first believer to come to faith in Asia, and in this, a preview of the fruit of salvation to come. So he was the first to come to faith, and it was a a testimony of thanksgiving to God and evidence that he's going to redeem a people in Asia. And then 1 Corinthians 15, Christ is called the first fruits of the resurrection, himself the first resurrected and a guarantee of our own resurrection. And then in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 15, um, the household of Stephanus constituted the first fruits of Achaia. And in this was a preview of the fruit of salvation to come. And in 2 Thessalonians 2, the Thessalonians were also recognized as a first fruits of salvation, again, a preview of the continued work of redemption among a people. So in view of the references to various believers being expressed as first fruits in their respective regions, some have concluded that James is identifying his own readers, which would be first century Jewish believers, early church believers, um, to be first fruits of the believers to come. And in that sense, we are part of that legacy. We've joined that legacy. They were the first fruits, and now we're continuing to, the Lord's continuing to bring in a harvest of believers. Again, they being among the very first and the testimony of God's redemptive work among men and us now continue part of that um, faithfulness demonstrated. And I think that's a really good conclusion to reach. And I'm happy to join it, but I'm not fully resolved that that's 
explicitly what James is speaking to. I think that's a true statement. I'm just not fully persuaded that that's what James is driving us to, mostly because of the final wording here, among his creatures. So again, so that you would be the first fruit among his creatures, which may well have a, a Romans 8 dynamic to it and better tie in with the language of father of lights and even Peter's pressing view to the coming of the new creation. So the argument here being that our redemption as sons and daughters of God is a testimony of a larger redemption to come, one experienced by the whole of creation, which is subjected to its current condition on account of man's sin. So why is creation groaning? What happened when Adam fell? It's not that the trees fell also. It's not that uh, the animals fell, but every bit of creation was impacted in view of man's sin and the creation groans for the revealing of the sons of God. There will be a day in which creation has also transformed the new heavens and new earth. There will be a complete transformation in tandem with our own. And so I would see this as a potential first fruits. Our redemption, our being, being born again, made new, is a view to the fact that we can give thanks to God, that he's a redeemer, that he makes things new, and a guarantee that indeed creation will be made new yet again, the new heavens and the new earth, directing our attention back to the father of lights, back to the creator God, the sovereign creator. Either way, though, we're in good company and we have grounds to be encouraged. First fruits is an encouraging uh, conclusion to James's argument there. And as we close, I hope you're encouraged that this um, encouraged that this encouragement will keep you think or your thinking calibrated to truth. That's what James's aims was. He, he wasn't saying, well, think rightly about some things I talked about. That's true. Think rightly about some things I'm going to talk about. That's true. But he really wants us to focus right here first, first and foremost. So hear him here and be encouraged and let that calibrate your thinking that we're not to be deceived. We're not to be led astray by deficient thoughts regarding our glorious God, our glorious God who is good in his giving, good in his gifts, specifically in his giving of a redemption of a people for himself with a view of a greater redemption yet to be experienced. That's encouraging when we're going through various trials. That's invigorating when we're called to persevere. When we have a reward that we look to, we're fixed to, to be reminded, don't have deficient views of God. It's not just about you and how you struggle and wrestle. That's true, but James is intensely practical to say, don't look just to yourself, but have right thinking, right views about our sovereign creator, God, who causes us to be born again. And so again, it's a letter with a lot of action associated with genuine faith and righteous lives. And... So it's striking also that when James constantly is telling us what to do, how we're to act, part of that is he's saying think and act in view of God and his character as well. And James reminds us that God, again, he's good, he's good, in, his go he's good in his gifts, they're perfect, and they range from the wisdom to perseverance through our trials to the blessings of the experiences and ultimately to eternal life secured by his word, which has also been generously given to us. And we see that a peek ahead in that regard. A matter that, as I've alluded to, James will return to in our next passage as he develops this clear emphasis on the scriptures, the life-giving word, which is able to save your souls. And so now we're going to conclude once again, affirming with James that the father of lights, he's no tempter. Rather, he is a redeemer, a redeemer that has provided his word that we might hear, submit, and believe and having right view and right thinking about the Redeemer will be encouraged to persevere in such a way so as to look forward to the full expression and the benefits of our having been born again, born from above, born by the gospel that he's generously provided for us. All right, let's pray. 
Lord, we do thank you. We thank you for your range of commands. Some commands are of such a nature that they give us firm direction. We need to ask for wisdom. We need to uh, evaluate our trials in such a way that we understand them as all joy. We need to um, ask in faith. Some commands provide a restorative uh, rebuke. What the one who's failing to ask in faith, he should expect they will receive nothing. The rich are to, to boast in their being impoverished. Uh, the, uh, the let no one say he's being tempted by God. All these commands are reflections of your kind, affectionate care for us. The fact that you've ordered and directed our lives that we can walk in a way that pleases you and that we can exercise faith and faithfulness and persevere well. And we thank you for this different command here, an affectionate reminder, an affectionate encouragement. Beloved, think rightly about the Lord of glory, the one who spoke and created and sustains all things, who orders all things according to his will, and in such he is giving good gifts, always giving good gifts, to include our salvation, our redemption in Christ, a redemption that has a view to a greater redemption. And so, Lord, we, we want to think rightly. We want to submit ourselves to the, to the commands that you've provided. We want to have um, lives that are ordered in such a way that they're not just obedient, but they're, they're shaped, again, with a worshipful disposition, a gratitude to you, and a heart that is confident that you will do as you said, and that when you give good gifts, we can be confident that whatever life comes, when, when the clouds come, it's not that they're obstructing the glories of the rays of the glory of God. Rather, they're just opportunities to, to look past such things and to recognize you're unchanging. You're faithful. Other things do change. Other things do wane and, and uh, have seasons and moments and strengths and weaknesses. But you're unchanging. And so we thank you, Lord, and we ask that you would, again, be our help. Keep us fixed. Find us faithful. And give us the grace that we would persevere for your good pleasure. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.